0: If you have an idea, you need to keep thinking about it. I, ca- I call it like connecting with my lizard brain. Like, I know it's a good idea if I can't stop talking about it.
1: Welcome back to Rough Cut. I'm Sky. And I'm Jenny. And
2: that voice you just heard was Erin Lee Carr. She's a documentary filmmaker and is most famous for her true crime docs, Thought Crimes, and Mommy Dead and
1: Dearest. And she's been a part of the video consortium for how long, Sky? I think that she joined in 2015, but I hear she's also working on a doc about the sex abuse scandal in USA Gymnastics.
2: Yeah, so that's called At the Heart of Gold. And it's slated to release on HBO in early 2019. She's also working on a doc about the Michelle Carter case. Oh,
1: that's that 17-year-old who texted her boyfriend to kill himself a few years ago. Huh? Yeah. Oh, geez.
2: Pretty serious stuff. So that's also going to debut on HBO in 2019. Have you seen
1: any of Aaron's films? I have. I've seen all of the ones that are out. And they're so dark and so amazing.
2: Yeah, so we talked a lot about her creative process and also about how her dad really helped her come into her own as
1: a storyteller. Right. So Erin's dad is David Carr, the famous New York Times journalist who died a few years ago. And we'll hear later on about how she draws on a lot of the things that he taught her about reporting and thoughtful, you know, fair storytelling and how she continues to apply all that she learned to her own work today. And, you know, I think that we can all listen to this conversation and personalize it because there's really something to be said for the ways in which our parents, all of our parents, shape us, regardless of what their professions are, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, okay. So, Jenny, I am excited. I want to hear this. Uh, You ready?
2: Yeah, let's do it. You launched your career at Vice working on the Motherboard vertical, because you kind of just describe what Motherboard is and why you were attracted to the kind of stories it was publishing.
0: So when I was working for Vice, I did not have a ton of experience. I was assisting producers. And so after I think a year or so, they weren't really sure what to do with me. Uh, I was I basically need to be put on a vertical and the people that were managing me at the time saw that Motherboard, which is the science and tech site, didn't really wasn't doing a ton of video and could use an AP. And what I didn't realize at the time was that would was going to completely change my life. Because when you're a filmmaker, and when you're looking to make things, what's really important is defining a beat And having, um, you know, Vice is such a big organization. And like, it was really difficult for me to figure out how to pitch Vice stories. But when you're talking about science and tech and microscopes and weapons and all of these things, like it's a lot easier to find stories um, if you're sort of looking at a specific sort of space. So I really credit the organization with putting me in a good spot and sort of letting me flourish.
2: Can I safely call your beat true crime now?
0: I love it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. How did you discover that as your beat? Did you do that advice?
0: No, they don't do a lot of true crime. They do some crime articles. But I remember I watched Capturing the Freedmen's Andrew Durecki's piece was it when I was in high school. And it, for those uh, people who are listening and don't know about it, which you absolutely should know about it, it's a, about the American family brought low by one father's pedophilic uh, sort of tendencies and the scandal that ensued after the fact. And so it just was this crazy, like, who do you believe? What's the real story here? Uh, one of the most incredible films I'd ever watched? And I'm like, including all narrative films in that. Um, I just could not stop thinking about it. And so when I Sort of thinking about making my own features, um, I knew that true crime had this incredible built-in audience, but also that I, as a human being, was personally very interested in it, and that meant that I was going to work harder, or longer, faster on the subject matter because I really sort of cared about it. What about
2: true crime was interesting to you? I mean, besides the fact that some crimes are just inherently interesting, what was it about that genre that like really attracted you?
0: Well, I mean, you know, you sort of look at it on its face and it's it's the stakes are built in. It's life and death. Um, So you can't really get better material than that for filmmaking. Um, That's not to say that I am like callous and that I don't see that I see death as a device versus something that actually exists in life. Like I very much honor and respect that death is incredibly private and personal. Um, but, you know, I think it's always been a little bit of an issue because in documentary, true crime is seen as this sort of like, um, little, like maybe a second class citizen. Like it's not the highbrow things that you see, um, you know, making its way onto the big streamings, like, well, no, on the big networks that used to be, or, you know, at a festival like Sundance, um, I think that, though, there has been a total true crime renaissance, and people can imagine and envision a, a scene in which uh, true crime and highbrow exist in the same sentence.
2: Yeah, totally. So how did you make that transition from like, making videos for Vice to directing these two amazing true crime documentaries for HBO?
0: Well, I went to a different company. I worked at Vox, and they fired me for being an idiot. What happened? (laughs) I was just really an idiot. Um, You know, do you ever have a moment where you really like you go into you go into work and you think it's your job to change things? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like it's this very sort of like alpha dog thing. Like, oh, you guys don't know what you're doing. I know what I know what I'm doing. Um, So it was a mixture of things. Uh, Which And I believe that they, they mishandled the situation and I mishandled the situation. And I used to be incredibly embarrassed about it. I'm speaking about it so cavalierly. That's not to say it was incredibly humiliating at the time. But what I've come to realize is, you know, if it's not a good fit, you should not stay in a job. Uh, you know, I know that media is difficult. There are not a ton of jobs. It was very well paying, but like, when it happened to me, I was crushed. I was like, I'm such a loser. You know, this is, this is a huge deal. How am I going to pay for my health insurance? And like, had I not been let go from that job, I would have never accepted a development deal with HBO. And I, you know, right now, and I hope I come across in the right way, but like I'm 30 years old and I'm on my, one, two, three, four. I'm on my like fourth or fifth feature, depending on how you sort of count dirty money. Like I would have never, ever, ever gotten there so quickly had it not been leaving that job (laughs) non-voluntarily.
2: How long do you think you would have stayed if that hadn't have happened?
0: Forever. I don't know. I mean, the money is good. You become complacent. Yeah. It's really hard to freelance. I don't have a ton of filmmaker friends that are consistently making featured television or feature docs or, or theatrical films. It's, you know, it's, it's a tough business model, but so is media.
2: So I want to dig into this a little bit more because I think anyone would look at you, Erin Lee Carr, who is 30 and already on her third documentary for HBO and think like, oh, she's only been successful. <laughs> Not true. (laughs) So I think the fact that you were fired is just like worth going into a bit more. After that happened, how did your perspective change and what did it teach you?
1: Um,
0: I I really learned that when you go to a job, it is imperative for you to figure out uh, your surroundings, take stock of those around you and not be paranoid, not be a weirdo, but you know, calculate who, you know, who around you is a friend and who is a foe. Um, I think that it's just like, these jobs are really important. There's a lot of money at stake. And so people don't stay at jobs forever. So had I done it differently, I one would have not picked that job. Um, They were making a ton of branded content. They were not making a ton of original that has since shifted their Vox is an incredible company. They continue to make amazing things, but the verge where I was, you know, where I was working you know, they, they were sort of finding their footing. And I was not at an age or an awareness level where I knew how to position myself within an organization. All I knew because I'd come from vice, which I was a feral weirdo was I only knew how to stick out. Mm -hmm. And I just also like, it's just this sort of entitlement thing that happens. Like, you're like, I know what I'm doing. And I think as a director, there's a ton of delusion that comes with it, Like you're like, I know how to make this movie, please give me a million dollars. People are like, Oh, I hope you that you spend it wisely. So I think that these are have all risks and rewards in equal measure.
2: So what eventually led you to HBO?
0: So I was looking at the other media companies that were hiring, it was looking pretty grim. Because I had gone from Vice, which was on the upper later, it was making a ton of stuff, Then I went to Vox, which was equally sort of happening. Uh, And then I was like, well, where do I go? Like, I'm not going to work at the New York Times, my dad works there. Uh, I don't, you know, I didn't really know where to work. And so I sent an email to a guy named Andrew Rossi, who's a feature filmmaker. And I said, Hey, I know you're busy. I'd love to get your uh, I'd love to get your feedback on a couple of these organizations if you have any time. And I did this, I said, I will come to you. I will be brief as possible. And I will buy you a coffee and I promise not to be too annoying. And it was just like a pitch that sort of worked. Maybe it was because he was sweet on my dad, you know, because they had been in uh, my dad had been in one of his films. Or it was that like, I literally knew how to write an email to someone saying like, hey, like, this is not going to be disaster. I will behave myself in this meeting.
2: So for those listening, who is Andrew Rossi?
0: He is a feature filmmaker. He made page one uh, inside the New York times, ivory tower, Bronx Gothic first Monday in May, uh, the Circa table in heaven. Uh, he is now my producing partner for all my HBO projects. He's just a brilliant strategist and thinker. And it was just like a bet that he was uh, that he sort of waged.
2: Why do you think that he took that chance on you?
0: I don't know because it's really difficult because you know now I'm giving feedback like you don't give your HBO emails away like when I get emails like hey could you connect me with HBO I'm just like oh my god I don't know how to do that I don't I'm not in a standing enough to do that it really. It really takes like a very specific place where you're at in your career, where you're generous, but also like you feel comfortable sharing people's names. And I'm really, really, really hoping to get there because that's how we, that's how I pay it forward. That's how I help the next filmmaker. But he had seen one of my Vice films and I was like, I really want to work at Frontline. I really want to work at The Guardian. He was like, no, you should make your own movies. You know how to, you know how to structure a device you know how to structure a story. They're just going to impose their structure on you versus you doing the sort of opposite. So I just think you should do it. And I was like, no, no, no. I have, I have health insurance. I live in a shack in Brooklyn. Like, I'm not going to be underemployed. And he was like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. So I remember I went through many rounds of an interview for a job at a um, proof, you know, a top tier media organization to work in their video department and I turned down the job because I was like, this is the bet. I want to do, I want to make a project with HBO. And so they, of course, HBO did not give me a film. Uh, they gave me what's called a development deal. And that's where you basically, they give you a small amount of money and you can either produce what's called a, like a a paper treatment and you write up, if you give me X amount of money, this is what I will make, or what I really suggest for everyone is you go out and shoot a section of it and you do a demo reel and that's what you turn in and you should always try to turn things in like in person you should always watch material down with people because they'll look at the whites of your eyes and look how hungry you are and not you're not a crazy person but like that you'll kill for the project and like that's how that's how it happened
2: that's how thought crimes happen that's the first one you pitched to them
0: no, I pitched, them and other, um, I pitched them a film about the dark web and Ross Ulbrick, which Alex Winter would later end up making that film. And Sheila was like, uh, that's really boring. I mean, no thank you. <laughs> so I had to like pitch her other things in the moment. And it was incredibly nerve wracking. And by the way, that subject matter is not boring. And Alex Winter's film was great. And I'm glad somebody made a film about it.
2: So you had other pitches prepared. You didn't just pitch thought crimes.
0: I probably had about six or seven other ideas. But um, when you're working, when you're looking, working with an executive or meeting with them, you really can't just be in pitch mode. It has to be conversational. And it really depends on the person. Sometimes executives just want to get in and out of the room. And so it's very sort of formulaic, like, here's my pitch. What do you think? Blah, blah, blah. And they sort of leave you dangling what I, how I sort of mentor people and talk to people is I do tons of research. I know where you went to college. I know what your major was. I know what the first film you made was. I've seen almost every one of the things that you're proud of. I know the. T- I've read every interview that you've done to figure out what your talking points are. And so like the other day I was with Lisa Heller and Nancy Abrams at HBO. And I was like, it's so cool, Lisa, you and I are like Wisconsin uh, Wisconsin grads and she was like you know that's yeah that's cool I love Wisconsin I was like you're a philosophy grad right and she was like what yeah and I was like whatever I'm a documentary filmmaker I'm gonna do my research before I go to this meeting do
2: people ever find that weird do they find it creepy
0: yeah but I'm a creep I think it's charming if you're a woman but probably not if you're a man yeah um so I, I try not to have it be creepy and just be like listen like You know, just like people love talking about themselves, like obviously me included, like being on this podcast, like, you know what I mean? It's just figuring out what people are proud of. And people have a lot to be proud of. And I like, I like talking about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So in that first meeting, how did you pitch thought crimes?
0: Yeah, it was a Gawker article that I read that I think Max Reed wrote. And I was like, there was this cop and... He, you know, he was convicted for conspiracy to kidnap, but it turns out like he never kidnapped anybody. So like maybe there's something there and it's pretty graphic. And Sheila was like, yeah, I like that. That's interesting. And
2: so you had just read an article like that was the extent of research you had done to that point.
0: Yeah. So basically I, I had like a one, like a one sheet on it okay, and I knew who the characters were. And I knew like, basically if she said, how would you tell this story? I would have a response for that. But I, at the time, like I just knew, and I was trained by my dad, you have to be easy to work with. This is not going to be a deal where I have the, like the positioning power, you know, like a non-reversal like, yeah, fine. I'll do it. Um, and I think when people get into those big rooms and they get matched against other people, they tend to ask advice of other people. And it's like, don't sign that contract. And it's like, sign what you need to, to get the movie made. Um, you know what I mean? Like, don't, don't act like a goon now.
2: hmm yeah. Especially if it's your first film and you don't have like a huge platform and probably not a lot of leverage.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult because there will not be a ton of financiers that will fund a, a first-time filmmaker. I didn't realize that, um, you know, because you're what's called an unproven bet. And regardless, like, my first film was not crazy expensive and I don't talk about budget ever. Um, but, like, you know, it, it's still some money that is happening. And I, I um, allied myself with an incredibly thoughtful producer, Andrew Rossi, um, but, you know... Like, you just have to be easy to work with.
2: Mm -hmm. What else did your dad teach you that was helpful in making that first film?
0: I think he taught me how to really be thoughtful, how to take lowbrow content, like a cop thinking about killing and eating women, and elevate it to a more societal understanding of like, are the the thoughts that we have in our head and the things that we type into Google is that representative of an actual action? And so I think he's always had this incredible way with words and ideas, and it was really uh, I could I'm so grateful that I was able to talk with him about some of that. And obviously Andrew, I talked with him a ton about it. He was producing it, but I often had creative uh, discussions with my dad about how to do it. And there was a huge sort of process figuring out how to do source work. Um, my, my source and my character at the time was Gail Valley and he had boundary issues. And when you're a documentary filmmaker, you go to people's houses and you're a part of their lives. And it's not like a journalist coming in for one or two times. Like you're basically, I like, I, I went there like 18 times And so you have to be really clear about boundaries. Like, um, you know, I care about this story. I care about getting it right. I care about telling it honestly. But, like, I don't want people to see me as a friend. I think then you you end up in really complicated ethical quandaries.
2: Yeah. I mean, I can imagine a situation where you build a friendship with this person and the movie comes out and maybe they feel betrayed by you.
0: Well, yeah, and it's just, like, I remember – my dad talking about like, you can't be such a sweetheart to him. And then like, you know, like skull fuck him in the edit. Like, that's not fair. He has an amazing interview with Terry Gross um, for Fresh Air, where he talks about listening to young reporters, like, you know, lay it on with honey and like be super, you know, sweet to sources and like get the quotes, and then just completely fuck them over in the written piece. And he's like, is that what you think journalism is? Um, you know, and I think that like how he lived his life was through radical and rigorous honesty. And like, that is a process everyone amongst us is trying to work towards. Like he had a particular gift and I'm just trying to work towards that in my own small ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was really difficult uh, to figure it out. And I have not made a film about a man ever since.
2: Well, you're making one now, right, about Larry Nassar?
0: I'm making it about the women. Right. So right, much right, more right. about the women than it is about the men. Um, it's on HBO. It's, uh, it is devastating.
2: Yeah, such, such a sad story. When that story broke, did you already have in your mind that you were going to make a documentary about it?
0: Yeah, I've been working on it since July 2017. And so that was before that was before the trial, excuse me, the sentencing, and when there was sort of a global reckoning of the moment. Um, I kept trying to tell people, you know, I'm doing a film about a sex abuse scandal within USA Gymnastics. I couldn't really get people on the horn. It was not really capturing anyone's attention. And then what happened in Judge Aquilinas in her courtroom completely changed the course of the film.
2: Mm-hmm. The women testifying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There were some pretty powerful moments in that. Some like cinematic moments.
0: Yes, definitely. So
2: I want to switch gears and talk a bit more about your two existing docs on HBO that's Mommy Dead and Dearest and Thought Crimes. Both films kind of follow a main character who has either done something terrible or, in the case of Thought Crimes, talked about doing terrible things. So as a viewer, in the first 20 minutes, you have sort of like already made up your mind about this person. But then as the films progress, you start to see that these characters are much more layered and and you start to see like the humanity in them. Was the evolution of these characters like a factor in why you decided to make the films? Or was it something that surfaced later, like in production or post-production?
0: I mean, I think that there are so many different ways to tell a story. And when people characterize a human being as a villain, there's often many reasons for that villainy. And I think that whenever I approach a crime story, I one want to know why it happened, but two, like what are what is behind the people that did these acts? And I think that that's something I'm incredibly proud of. Um, we are not equal to our best or worst action. And that has been something I've always thought in my life. And, you know, I think as I reach out to people now, um, you know, I think it's something that I have as a card in my, in my hand, it's like, you are going to get a fair shot with me and you are going to be seen as a human because I think it's really easy to one dimensionalize people to that specific bad choice. And like, that is just not the films I will ever make. And in, and in fact, I will always go the opposite. I try to always be thinking about like, what, what is the good and bad of the situation? Like, why did they do this? Yeah. In both of these docs, you're covering really
2: loaded topics, you know, murder, rape, the dark corners of the internet. There's a lot of like shame surrounding these things how do you gain your subject's trust and how do you approach their stories in a way that doesn't feel like exploitive
0: honestly it's really been a journey and it's really looking to other filmmakers um speaking with other filmmakers about like how do you do this um how do you represent yourself how do you you know when do you show people the product um i think i never learned more than when i was working on this film about sex abuse within gymnastics because I was going into people's homes and asking them to recount their physical abuse. And then I was going to turn the camera off and I got to decide what to do with it. And I there, I just thought something was sort of wrong about that, but like you can't show people the project because then it'll affect how you edit it. So I, I mean, I worked with a lot of female crew and I have a female producer, executive producer, Sarah Gibson, uh, associate producer, Jen Malak. And it was like, okay, like, what, how can we make people feel comfortable? And it really was sitting down with the person before without all the cameras and saying, Hey, you are in control of this interview. And obviously I would never say that to anyone else, but in this specific instance, it was um, imperative. I was like, you're in control. We get to talk about things that you want to talk about. And we do not have to talk about the things that you do not want to talk about. If you do not want to answer a question, please say, we're going to move on. And me respecting that and respecting when they wanted to go off the record and if they wanted to end the interview early, because this is not for television. These are people's lives. And I I took that responsibility very, very, very seriously.
2: What about someone like Gil Valley, who, um, in case the listeners haven't seen Thought Crimes, is a former New York City cop who was caught chatting um, on these online forums about raping, brutally murdering and eating women. Um, The film is really centered around him, and I assume that you spent a lot of time with him, you know, building a relationship and building trust over time. At what point did you decide, like, okay, I've built up enough trust and it's time to start filming without fear that he was, like, going to retract?
0: You know, with Gil, it was a very specific case. Like, I started um, going to the prison, uh, seeing him in person doing things off the record, doing things off camera. Then we we switched to phone calls where I would tape the phone calls. Then we switched to in-persons where I had a handheld camera. Then we switched to uh, basically big sit-down interview and more filming and more filming and more filming. Like that, it was just like taking it step by step, not to make him feel nervous, but basically I needed to get the material I needed to get. Uh, With everybody else, like, you know, I have to now I'm like making things at such a rate, like I have to move to getting on camera uh, pretty quickly once I contact you. And I'm happy to have an off the record conversation to start to tell you who I am, what the product is, the sort of themes that we'll be talking about, but then I'm going to, I want to, I want to move you to on camera. Um, so I've lost a little bit of my uh, handholding abilities that I had in my previous sort of first couple of films, but I just like I don't know like I just want to make a ton of great movies and I want to make one per year and like that's a pretty fast timeline.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like working at that speed has any disadvantages?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot would say like you have to be really careful that the quality does not go down because like, and I, I go to film festivals and I'm I'm with films that people have spent seven years of their own time doing not to mention partially funding it themselves. I am completely in awe of those people. Um, it is incredibly, it's incredible. And I just think like, you know what I mean? That is pure documentary filmmaking. You're putting your own time and your own money because you believe into something for years. I'm not saying I'm a faker in any way. I love documentaries. I love watching those movies um, I make of specific sort of movies that uh, that are not like that. But maybe someday I'll have to, you know what I mean? A story just will not like, will not seed and I will have to follow it for years, but we'll see.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I want to backtrack a bit to 2013. Um, you did this TED Talk where you said at the time that it was a golden age of documentary filmmaking. Do you still feel that way?
0: Absolutely. You know, I just think that there's a way to really enact real change um, by making these things. Because, like, when you're talking about HBO and Netflix, like, the amount of eyeballs they have on any current, like, any given project, I mean, it's insane. It is a, it is a literal spotlight. And so it's my dream to make a film about something and have something change as a result, whether it be, uh, you know, enforce uh, mandatory reporting as a result of the gymnastics film I don't know it's a pretty amazing time to do this work yeah and also like being you know you you work at now this news people work at the New York Times like it's not feature filmmaking it's everything like it's all this content that can do things like you don't have to spend years on a feature film to change things you can write an article you can post something on Twitter and you can make a short video that gets posted to a website like these are all possibilities
2: yeah absolutely absolutely do you think you're going to be doing true crime documentaries for a long time?
0: I think so. Like, I love looking at other types of docs, like Will You Be My Neighbor? or uh, Kate Novak Made the Gospel According to Andre. You know, these biopics that have just, you get to feel a deep sense of intimacy and closeness to the subject. And like, so who are your favorite documentary
2: filmmakers right now?
0: Liz Garbus is spectacular. She made the fourth estate. She made Mona, my all time favorite films. There's something wrong with aunt Diane. I love Lucy Walker. I love Andrew Rossi. Sorry. I know that's a plug for him that I've already plugged for him. Oh my gosh. I mean, I just, I love like all these films that are coming out. I love Alex Gibney. I've been working with him for a while. He really makes things that sort of cause you to question truth and deception uh in, in a real time way. Um, you know, I just there's just there's more good filmmakers working than bad filmmakers, I would say. Yeah. But totally room for other people to be making things too.
2: Yeah. And it feels like with the internet there's like infinite room.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something that is at risk is the feature film. I think you you know, you and I get home from a long day. And we've been on the subway, and someone's coughing on us, and it's like, oh god, I just want to eat dinner and watch Parks and Rec. <laughs> and so, like, yeah. there's just this thing that happens where you don't really want to watch a feature. You don't want to sit down and like. I think people are really turning towards documentary television, and I I, I want to believe in a world where there's. There's uh, room for both of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can watch the 60 Minutes Dirty Money episode on Trump, but then you can also watch, you know, the sentencing, the new film on HBO that just came out. Um, you know, there's a lot. Like we just, we need to keep the feature doc alive.
2: I don't know, but don't you think it's a good time for feature length documentaries? I mean, it feels like maybe just in my social circles. There's more people like actually going out and going to the movies and seeing a documentary.
0: I mean, I was hiring people for something that I was staffing up on. And I asked every single person, what was the last doc you saw in theaters? And this is for a documentary. And people were not answering in the way that I wanted. (laughs) Oh, really? People had a hard time even. I was like, so what of my films have you seen? And I know that sounds like that is a biased, weird, creepy thing to say to put somebody on the spot. Like, hey, did you watch this? But like, you you only need to watch one of them. And yeah, like people had not watched it. I was like, what are you doing in this job interview? Like, <laughs> yeah, I uh, just, this is not me saying, please go do this algebraic solution for me. Like, it's like, watch something because you're going to be talking to me about a job.
2: Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of really interesting crime-related stories in the news every day and just crazy shit. What stories stand out to you as documentary material and like what makes you take that next step to be like, okay, I can make a feature length film about this one
0: case. It's a really, really good question. So first, the first thing is, is it layered? Are there multiple versions of this story? Are there characters that are alive? Two, are you, do you continue to keep searching about it? Are you checking Reddit? Reddit? Are you checking podcasts? Are you checking if somebody did it? If you have an idea, you want to, you need to like keep thinking about it. I ca- I call it like connecting with my lizard brain. Like I know it's a good idea if I can't stop talking about it. Three, you have a circle of people like the video consortium that you can call and be like, hey, is this a good idea? And don't trust that person who's always being like, I don't think so. I've seen something like that before. That person's a hater and should be deleted from your uh, from your phone. You need people that are open, that are willing, that will give you great feedback, but are not drinking hater aid. Um, And four, always, always, always check if someone else is making it. Do not spend six months making something that someone has already started to make. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, also, all three are about much broader issues than this one crime.
0: Yeah, the Michelle Carter, the one that's like not out yet that I've so obsessed with. It's a limited run series about a woman who told her boyfriend to kill himself. And unfortunately, sadly, he did. And so it's like, it was the perfect character study about two people that were sort of really involved in mental health issues, but also like, how do we treat people with mental health issues? So picking a crime story where you can really focus on the people, but also have those deep dive sort of ethical questions, I think makes for good TV.
2: I want to talk about some of your struggles because I feel like in this industry from the outside, it often looks like filmmakers just suddenly rise to the top and it's a, a totally linear climb.
0: No, and we're all going to fall off at a certain point. I remember like a festival director, and I won't name names, just like, just so you know, like you've been very successful. Like, Get ready for a drop, baby. And I was just like, what are you talking about? That's horrifying. I thought we only go up. But no, like, and that's why, like, it, I'm sure it's going to sound really strange that I was talking so cavalierly about being fired. Like, I was in complete and total shock and fear when it happened.
2: But that's such a valuable learning experience. And everybody's been fired at one point, especially in media.
0: Have you? Yes. <laughs> Good. Freaking money we your mouth is. Love it. I always ask people now that, and my other question for people always is, Have you turned a no into a yes?
2: Have you turned a no into a yes? Explain that a little bit more.
0: So my whole job is reaching out to people and saying, hey, I want to tell this story. Will you do it? It's very difficult for people to give over um, the power and say like, oh, yes, please have control of this story. And it's actually my story. And like, I trust you. And so often, many, many, many times, people are going to say, no, no, I don't want to do that. And then you say, okay, well, this is the reason why uh, I want to try to convince you. And like, you can't be manipulative. You can't, you know, put a pressure point on. You have to figure out a way and follow up and try to get a no into a yes. And every single person that I choose to work with that I am grateful and hopefully people would choose to work with me have turned a no into a yes.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never really thought about it that way, but it is a big part of journalism. Do you have any advice on how to turn a no into a yes?
0: I think that when somebody says no to you, you don't act put off, you don't ignore it. And you just say, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to consider the request. I'm going to be thinking about this the next couple of days. And, you know, I'm going to follow up to see and, you know, to tell you if anything's changed. And then I just, I guess, like, If they say no a couple of times, I kind of say like one last shot, um, you know, would you consider because of X, Y, and Z. And I also like, I'm working with this woman, Celia right now, and I kind of listen to how she does her phone calls. Uh, I listen to how Sarah does her phone calls. You know, I just like, I can't, I'm in a constant state of learning from other really smart, cool people uh, in order to like, you know, get my game completely on point, which it never is, but it's a continual process. Are these other producers you're working with? Um, yes. Yeah, Celia is a co-producer and uh, Sarah is my gymnastics producer.
2: Okay. Is there anything else that you've learned from them that you have found really valuable or any other producers that you've worked with?
0: I I have one thing I want to read to you and you can decide to cut it out if you want to. It's um, Basically, I was making my first feature... And I was like, how do you do this? This is insane. And my friend, Jigar, who worked with my dad at the time, was like, you know what? I have a friend who's a future filmmaker. Um, let me, let like, I'll send you his email and you can ask him a question.
2: So have this person met you before yeah. or was it just like a cold email?
0: Cold email. Okay. In terms of advice for a first-time filmmaker, I'd say trust your gut. Don't let others sway you from your vision, but keep an open mind. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, people you like and respect. Don't sweat technology too much, but learn as much as you can about gear and how it works. It'll make you a better filmmaker and a better communicator. Shoot and edit your film yourself if you can. If you can't, ask yourself why you can't. If you hire an editor, hire someone who isn't just a button pusher. You want somebody who will push back. Don't worry about getting into film festivals or awards or that kind of nonsense. Focus on story and emotion. Ask yourself, why should I care about this film every now and then? And prepare yourself emotionally that rejection is a perfectly normal, perfectly healthy part of the process. And just keep moving forward. Also remember this. Films are never finished. You can continue to work on them forever. Constantly modifying, tweaking, refining. Films are never finished. They are at some point abandoned. Wow. That's... That's powerful. It's perfect.
2: Is there anything in there that you keep coming back to as you're working on these projects?
0: Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Like I think we get into a spot where we we want to be the alpha in the room and the smartest, and that is just not the way to go. Especially in a place like New York, where you can find so many smart people. Um, I don't know. And also, like this, the simple act of asking someone for advice. And, you know, I did not expect this from him. And I told him, I emailed him and I said, I completely treasure this. I keep it up to my uh, next to my desk. Like, I didn't just let it float out into the universe. I really paid attention and said this was so, so thoughtful. Thanks
2: so much for listening. Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Our theme music is by Zach Wright. Our design is by Adam Glucksman. The podcast is co-produced by Sky Dillard Robbins, who's the founder and executive director of the Video
1: Consortium. And all of our guests and the people who made this podcast happen are in the Video Consortium. And for the filmmakers who are listening, we'd love for you to check us out and maybe join. So the Video Consortium is a creative community of the world's top nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're all based throughout the world, but we have chapters in New York, LA, San Francisco, Washington, DC, Paris, and a bunch more coming soon. You can visit us at videoconsortium.com and find us on all of the social things. And if you're in one of our chapter cities and want to attend an upcoming monthly gathering, which are secret parties slash screenings of sorts, just shoot us an email info at videoconsortium.com And if you want to learn more about Rough
2: Cut, you can visit roughcutpodcast.com and maybe shoot us a note. Thanks
1: so much for listening. See you next time.